Thanks very much for coming, everyone. I'm Connie Walker. I'm the host of Missing and Murdered, the, the CBC News podcast um, from Toronto, Canada. I'm Cree. I'm an Indigenous woman uh, myself, so I have a bit of a personal connection to the subject matter. Um, and we'll talk a bit about how that kind of informs our work and our process. Um, but I'm really excited to be here with, with everyone. And I'm Jennifer, and I'm one of the producers. And we were a five-person team making this. We were um, three producers, a host, and a senior producer. Uh, so we're here on behalf of our whole team. Two others are here floating around. So there's three things that we want to uh, get into with you today. One is um, using true crime to get a deeper understanding of the causes of injustice. Two is this idea of being a, a storyteller versus a story taker, which um, is an idea we've borrowed from a colleague of ours back in Toronto, Duncan McHugh, who trains people, uh, non-Indigenous reporters, on covering Indigenous communities. And third is using a trauma-informed approach um, when you are doing these kinds of stories. Um, and I just want to add, like, the, the first one, using true crime to get uh, a deeper understanding of the causes of injustice. I think that as a journalist, I'm primarily a journalist, and I've become a podcaster um, in the last couple of years. And I think that I'm personally connected to uh, telling stories from Indigenous communities, uh, and that has always been kind of my goal. And, and, and this session is trying to help people who also might have similar goals about other big societal issues and trying to figure out like how you can tell them within the context of, of true crime or a mystery. So obviously there are a lot of um, amazing true crime podcasts out there and there seems to be an insatiable appetite for this genre. It keeps growing. I'm working on another one right now. Um, and of course, not every true crime podcast needs to tell a bigger story, but there is an opportunity here uh, to harness the popularity of this genre if you want to do something that is more of a social justice story or something that explores a bigger context, you can use the genre to, to do that. And I think I would even say, I think that it might be the perfect kind of genre and, and kind of platform to do that. Because, you know, to be honest, if you ask somebody, hey, um, do you want to listen to like a seven hour audio documentary about um, violence against indigenous women? There might be some people who say, sure, yeah, I'm into that. But I think that the, if you ask people, are you interested in this wild story about a little girl who went missing? Uh, you know, and who was taken from her family, uh, I think that you're just going to widen your scope and probably reach people who don't think that they're interested in these, uh, you know, big issues, uh, like indigenous issues or MMIW or whatever it is that you're interested in telling. So I've been a journalist for about 18 years, and I, I think that this uh, format has been kind of the most satisfying and gratifying way to tell these stories that I've always been interested in and I've always felt are important, but it's, it's always also been a struggle to do that with more traditional platforms. You know, like I've, we've done television news stories, television documentaries, uh, and it's been, it's been a challenge. So I think that actually uh, using true crime and kind of subverting the popularity of it to, to kind of harness your own goals, I think is 
really the best thing. And everybody, you know, loves a, a good mystery. So I think that before we kind of get into the process and how we did that, I, I just want to give a bit of background information about the particular issue that we are interested in in our podcast, which is called Missing and Murdered. And that is the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. In Canada, we are disproportionately victims of violence. And we've done a lot of reporting uh, rec only recently, like in the last, I'd say, three to five years, this has become a very important issue uh, that people are paying attention to in Canada. Um, and it's, it's always been a problem. It's always been an issue. But for a long time, people weren't paying attention. Uh, and if I just, you know, we're listing some of the statistics here that Indigenous women and girls are seven times more likely to be murdered, three times more likely to be victims of violent crime. And in Saskatchewan, which is the province where I'm from and where Cleo uh, was also from, 60% of the women who are missing in that province are Indigenous, despite the fact that we make up less than 6% of the population. Um, so this is an issue that I'm talking about that exists in Canada and is beginning getting traction in Canada. But this is an issue in the United States as well. This is, the border is kind of just this imaginary thing, but we have this shared history of colonialism and the way that it impacts Indigenous communities. I think there are so many parallels between what's happened in Canada and what's happening in Canada and also what's happening in the United States. And I know because I'm a bit um, connected to some Indigenous communities here that it's starting to get some attention and it's starting to get some traction, but I think that as storytellers, this is a very, uh, I, I think, really important area that people should be paying more attention to uh, in the United States as well. So I mentioned that I've done a lot of uh, kind of more news reporting for, for TV and radio, um, where it's been unsatisfying in some ways to try to provide the context, you know, to show, uh, to help tell people and show people why Indigenous women are more likely to be victims of violence. Because that's, that's the question, right? Like this, we did, the first season of our podcast delved into the story of Alberta Williams. Um, and I think... One of the mistakes I've made in my reporting uh, previous to the podcast was um, not doing a very good job at weaving in the context and showing that. And with the Alberta Williams, uh, you know, when we started it, we kind of uh, focused on the mystery of the story. Uh, I had gotten an email uh, one day, and the subject said, Alberta Williams murder. And I clicked it open, and it was just one sentence. And it said, she was murdered by, and it named a person. And that was all the email said. And so I hadn't really heard of Alberta's story, but I ended up replying back to the person who sent it. And it turns out he was a former police officer and one of the lead investigators in her murder uh, investigation. Um, and he just always believed he knew who did it, but he never had the evidence to charge that person. And so our story, when we started, focused on interviewing him and interviewing Alberta's sister, and then we ended up you know, hearing from people who kind of had information about this case, and it ended up coming, we just kind of kept pulling the yarn, and, and uh, we decided that it was more than a TV story, it needed to be a podcast. But initially, we were focused solely on the mystery of it, and it wasn't until I attended a conference, kind of like this one, um, where one of the speakers, uh, the keynote speakers, talked about the importance of providing the context when talking about Indigenous issues. And I'm going to share that with you today because I think it's something that we can all kind of learn from. And she was a, a former broadcaster and former journalist who did a lot of work with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. And I'll speak a bit more about that as well. But at the keynote, she said to all, a room full of journalists, don't skip the context, 
That's the biggest trap I know for all working journalists when time is of the essence. If you can't explain it in this story, explain it in the follow-up. Explain it. When did this story actually begin? And I think that that's the crucial question. When did this story actually begin? Because if you think about Cleo, uh, if you think about Alberta Williams, I have done reporting on Leah Anderson, Amber Tuckrow, their stories actually began before they died or before they disappeared. It began uh, you know, with a part of Canadian history that a lot of people don't know a lot about, and that's um, this, the story of Indian residential schools. So in Canada, for over 150 years, uh, Indigenous children were forcibly removed from their parents, from their families and communities, and sent to live in these Indian residential schools, these boarding schools from the time they were four, five, six years old. Um, some of them got to see their parents maybe at Christmas and maybe in summer holidays, but some of them never went home again or didn't go home until they were in grade eight or seven or eight. Uh, a lot of kids ran away from schools because uh, there was malnutrition, there was widespread physical and sexual abuse. And this happened over generations. So generations of children were taken for over 150 years. The last residential school closed in Canada in 1997. And I tell you this because there is a similar history in the United States of Indian boarding schools. This happened to Indigenous people in the United States as well. And this is an issue that a lot of people think, oh, that happened a long time ago. It's not relevant anymore. Like, we need to, like, focus on today. But I think that every modern-day story that we tell about Indigenous people is actually directly tied back to the legacies and the trauma that people experienced in these schools and then passed on to their families and to generations. And I'm showing this school in particular because it's from Bertle, Manitoba. And this is the school that my grandmother uh, attended and she ran away from. And we're from Saskatchewan, so she actually ran away from Manitoba back to Saskatchewan and made it home, never went to school again, uh, and, and swore that none of her kids would go to a residential school. So I obviously, like, I, I have an understanding about these bigger issues, and that's why I, I'm, I became a journalist. But I think that, you know, there's a way for, for even non-Indigenous journalists to, once we all learn this kind of background and how important it is, that we can all bring it to to our work, and, and that's something obviously Jen has, has been a part of as well. So when it came time to starting this story, we knew from the beginning that we wanted to connect the dots and provide that bigger context, but we also knew that at its heart it had to be a mystery, it had to be a good yarn, it had to be something that hooked people in from the beginning. Um, because if you're coming to this as a true crime listener, that's what you're there for. You're not there for the history lesson, you're there for the mystery. Um, and so this is uh, actually a video trailer for the podcast, but it sets up the mystery much in the same way we did in the podcast. So we're just going to play it for you guys. But to not know anything, not be told anything, and then this child just disappear into thin air, no. <laughs> Something is amok. I've done a lot of reporting on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, but I've never heard a story like this before. What, what do you do when uh, complete strangers come and grab you, throw in a car and push your grandma out of the way and they take you away? She was yelling, she was crying. She tried to hitchhike back to Little Pine, back home to the reserve, but was picked up, raped and murdered and left by the side of the road. She grabbed her brother's jacket and the jacket was found floating in a creek. Cleo's spirit is very much alive. She stares at me across time, asking to come up. I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, 
Finding Cleo, an investigative podcast by CBC News. So at the heart of the story is this little girl, Cleo. Her family has believed for decades that she was adopted into Arkansas, that she was hitchhiking home, that she was picked up and raped and murdered and left by the side of the road. This is all they've known for 20 years. Um, and that is the, the, the mystery thread that continues throughout the story. There's also in this trailer, but also in the first episode of our podcast, we start to hint at some of the bigger issues that we're going to explore. You saw those sort of wacky, pixelated images of kids' faces. Those were actually television ads that were placed in the 1960s and 70s in Saskatchewan um, by the government uh, to advertise kids for adoption through a program that they ran called the Adopt Indian Métis Program that was set up to try and alleviate the high number of indigenous kids who were in the foster system. They were trying to get them permanent homes. And so they set up this program, they advertised kids on TV and newspapers. And that is one of the historical pieces, one of the historical chapters that we will go on to explain in our um, story, but at its heart is the mystery. You know, I feel like we kind of had two goals in the podcast uh, over 10 episodes. Um, obviously, like the mystery that people were coming for, like what happened to Cleo? How, like, are we going to find her? And that was something that had to be strong enough to sustain people, obviously, uh, through 10 episodes. And then we were looking, like it was really important for us. We knew at the beginning we wanted to tell a story about child welfare. We wanted to tie back to residential schools. We wanted to show how Indigenous women involved in the child welfare system why they're more, more likely to become missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And so we needed to like find ways to kind of bring in the context uh, you know, as naturally and seamlessly as we could and try to weave it, weave it through. And so, so when we're talking about the 60 scoop, which is the ph phenomenon of the large number of Indigenous kids who um, were not taken for residential schools, but were taken by child welfare workers and then adopted out and placed into white families, like Cleo and all of her siblings. They kind of ended up scattered across North America. Mm -hmm. um, and then we tried to tie that back to residential schools and the AIM program that, that Jen was mentioning. And then we're going to show you through this presentation how that kind of uh, weaves together at the end. Um, and why it, why it actually works really well to weave those things together and why I think it actually makes the story richer. So this is a picture of how complex This is our massive storyboarding process. We had to figure it all out. So we, what we did was we kind of gathered everything. We, you know, we started investigating and then we kind of just did a bunch of gathering trips and research kind of at the same time. And then there came to a point where we had gotten to the end, and we're really lucky to do that because the first season of the podcast, um, we tried to do it at the same time as we were rolling out, and that was very stressful and intense, and I wouldn't recommend it. So this is after we had kind of gathered everything and we knew what we had. We spent a lot of time in this one meeting room at CBC going through like all of the different characters that we were going to introduce, uh, all of the different kind of scenes that we had. And then at the bottom, we had a list of all of the issues that we knew that we wanted to get into in the podcast. The 60 Scoop, the issue of interracial adoption, the issue of identity or like what the children lost once they were removed from their community culture, 
family uh, and how that impacted each of them, uh, residential schools, racism, colonialism. So all of those big issues that I'm, I'm interested in talking about, but trying to figure out a way to weave it in in a, in a seamless way. And this is kind of where we ended up uh, after, I think it was about a week in, in this room yeah, together. I don't know, it's such a mess. It was, it's kind of intense. And so just to be clear, we've mentioned the 60s scoop a couple times, and that's a name that's been given to this period of time that actually started in the 1960s but ended in the 1980s when tens of thousands of Indigenous children were adopted mostly into white homes. And there's been a, a actually a lawsuit in, in Canada now that um, 60s scoop survivors have won against the federal government um, for their loss of culture during that period when they were adopted out of their families and uh, into white homes across Canada and the U.S. So I think that character development, obviously, with any kind of storytelling, is crucial and key. Um, and that's something that we really wanted to focus on kind of uh, right at the beginning, because that was, because Cleo was obviously our central character in a lot of ways, but, it, you know, she she was this absent character who we didn't actually hear from. We were trying to learn about her through other people. But it ended up being her siblings who were actually the ones who were also taken and the ones who were trying to find her that, that became kind of our central characters. And we really needed people to, uh, to become invested in them. So unothering the other. This is a phrase that we came up, to, came up with to describe um, what what we hope will happen during our story, which is that people will learn to identify with the members of this family, even if their own lived experience is extremely different. So if you, maybe you are not from Saskatchewan, maybe you're not Indigenous, maybe you've never been adopted, um, you know, maybe nothing like this has ever happened to you, but how can you find a place in this family's story? Um, this is Christine Cameron. She's uh, Cleo's sister who's been looking for Cleo for decades, and she was the person who brought the story to us. She's the driving force behind it. Um, and we wanted our audience to identify with Christine as, as much as they could. And I think that, that that can sometimes be challenging if you are reporting from communities that have been disadvantaged in terms of the way that they have been represented in mainstream media. And that's definitely true in Canada with Indigenous issues, that for too long uh, they were underreported, meaning not getting any attention at all, uh, or misrepresented in stories, or stories relied on harmful stereotypes or misconceptions about what it meant to be an indigenous woman or girl, uh, or often you know, would kind of reinforce these negative stereotypes or harmful tropes that really kind of serve to dehumanize our experience, that, you know, that, that were this one dimensional thing. And so I think that that was a bit of a challenge in our podcast, is trying to uh, you know, push those, like, those misconceptions aside and, and try to create space for people to identify with Christine. Yeah, so the yeah. thing about Christine is that she gets this. She knows this. She, she knows how to do this herself. She knows how to force other people to see through her eyes and to, to try and see the world through her lived experience. So um, in our first episode, uh, we go visit Christine, and she's been trying for years to get answers from the Saskatchewan Department of Social Services about what happened to Cleo. And what she's finding is that time after time she's being told, we cannot share any information with you. We, we, we have, there's nothing within our regulations that allows us to share information with a sibling. Sorry, you're out of luck. She's written letters, she's made phone calls. We bring her the phone number of somebody in social services who we think might have 
some information. And the woman says to her on the phone, well, I, I don't know if I can do anything. We'll go check with our legal department, um, but this is an unusual situation, and our regulations don't allow me to share any information with you, but I'll see what I can do. So she leaves the door open to a tiny little bit of hope, and um, it's a very frustrating phone call. It's yet another frustrating phone call, one of many that Christine has had over the years. And at the end of the call, um, she says, I, uh, I just have one more question. Christine uh, and all of her family has believed that um, Cleo was in Arkansas. This is what they've been told. It was like a family rumor, and they never really knew the source of it, but this is what they've believed for years, is that Cleo was adopted into a family in Arkansas and was hitchhiking home when she died. Because um, it, this is all about privacy, privacy restrictions for adopted. So once they're adopted, their name is changed. Uh, you know, the, the biological family doesn't know where they end up or what their name is. Uh, they, all they knew was that Cleo died, and they think that, that it was Arkansas. And then my, one of my final questions is, have you, your office had any experience dealing with Arkansas adoption agencies to facilitate the, the successful transfer of information? With Arkansas? Yeah. Um, I don't recall another instance with Arkansas, no. Mm, okay. <clears throat> and I just, yeah, I'm not sure that information is correct. Oh, well, how do you know yeah. it's correct or not? Yeah. Pardon? How would you know it's correct or not? Because, uh, like I said, we've been, we have some of the information oh. from your file. Well, it would be nice to have some sort of information. You know, as a sibling, you know, it's been 40 years. Yes. <laughs> and for 20 years, you've told me nothing. <laughs> This is my sister. Her body's in the States, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you have a sister? I do. Well, then maybe think about how I feel and really try your best. Because if you know she's not in Arkansas, then find a way to tell me where she is. Okay, that's what I'm going to work on. Please. Okay. So I will call you by tomorrow at the latest to let you know where I'm at. All right. Okay? Okay. All right. Okay. Thank okay, you. Thanks for calling. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. So Christine says to this bureaucrat on the phone who is likely holding all of the answers that she's been looking for for decades. In fact, it turns out that she is. She literally has the folder in front of her. Um, do you have a sister? And she's forcing that woman to 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 put herself into that position, and that's what we're hoping the listener does too. And that was, uh, you know, like Christine obviously did that herself. I think just just naturally, that was something that sh- that she did. But that was something that we tried to be really um, deliberate about when we were talking about their mother. This is Christine's mother and Cleo's mother, Lillian Smeganis, and so. Um, she had six children who were all taken from her, that child welfare authorities took all of her children and they were uh, taken and adopted uh, into white families and scattered across uh, North America. And Lillian is a very, she has such a complex story. She was a residential school survivor when she was six years old. She was sent to, um, you know, there, I think that they were all notoriously bad, but the, but 
Prince Albert, the school that she went to in particular was, was incredibly uh, horrifying residential school we found out through research. Um, and she, she never went home. Uh, she didn't go home for years, for six years. Uh, and so we don't know what happened to her in that residential school, uh, but we've heard the stories of so many other residential school survivors who re recount the trauma of being separated and taken away from your family at six years old, uh, living um, in a place that where you don't have adequate uh, food or shelter, that you're told uh, your your culture and language is, is not, is dirty, it's terrible, you're, you're not allowed to speak it. Um, you, you know, so many people experienced, uh, as I mentioned, horrific physical and sexual abuse for, for years. Um, so we can imagine that she had this terrible experience that obviously impacted her entire life. Um, and her ability to parent. And, and, and her ability to parent. And I think that, you know, there's, there's a danger in, it, I was concerned about telling Lillian's story and revealing um, the fact, you know, that she, you know, she wasn't always a good mother, you know, that she, she struggled with her own uh, issues and addictions, uh, and that there was a lot of involvement with child welfare in her family, uh, with her children. Um, and we didn't want to reveal that too early in the podcast because I wanted to create some space for people to have empathy for her before they fully understood the truth. And so create the space for people to learn about this context of residential schools, learn about the impacts and the intergenerational trauma, learn about how that impacts and continues to impact families and communities today before we learn the truth about Lillian and, and get a better sense of, of what her story is. And that, I think, is something that was we didn't always agree on like how or, or where to do that, but I feel like that that was something that was really important for us uh, to do. And again, I think if you're reporting from communities that have been disadvantaged, I think that it's really important to be as thoughtful and as careful as you can be about these bigger contexts and how that impacts the way that you're shaping your stories. Um, and, and the other thing uh, to be aware of um, in that context is the role of trauma. And so obviously Lillian would have experienced trauma as a child. And because all of her children were taken by child welfare workers, they all experienced childhood trauma as well. And we learned that through talking to Christine. She was the first sibling that we, we spoke with. But we, we learned that with every single sibling that we talked to. And the next... Um, the next person that, that we're going to, to show you is um, one of Christine and Cleo's sisters, April. She's the little girl in this photo. That's April and Annette. They were uh, adopted together. Um, they were the only two of the siblings that actually ended up together. And April is, is the little girl. And this is um, my first phone conversation with April. Do you have a few minutes to chat right now? Does yes, I can. Okay, great. So, so I'm not sure how much Mark told you about what what it is that we're hoping to do. Yes, yes he told me everything. Do you do you remember Cleo? Um, no, I don't, because um, I have bipolar depression, and um, for nine and a half years, I I I did ECT, and my memory's gone. Most of my memory's gone because of that. That's heartbreaking. I'm sorry to hear that. 
I'm just going to stop here and explain. April says she did nine and a half years of ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy or electroshock therapy. It's basically a procedure where electricity passes through the brain and triggers a seizure. And April did that to treat her bipolar depression. I stopped doing it back in September, but my memory hasn't come back at all. So do you, do you remember anything from, from before your adoption? Some things I do that um, we don't have to that get weren't in- very pleasant. Yeah, we don't have to. We don't have to get into it now. Like we don't have to get into it now. I didn't want to get into it because I was concerned that having this is our first conversation. I, you know, it was within a minute of talking to her, and I I didn't want her to get into this childhood trauma. I didn't want to re-traumatize her in this conversation. I didn't want her to feel like she was obligated to tell me her story or her life because I was a reporter who wanted to to talk uh, about her family and her sister. And and I think that kind of goes against your instincts as an investigative reporter, right? You want to get to the truth. You want to find out as much as you can. You really want to dig as deep as you can. Um, and that is something that we really, like, put the brakes on. Like, we, you know, we're like, April is obviously... Uh, incredibly has been incredibly affected by the trauma that she experienced as a child um uh you know she's she's still struggling and going through a lot and this is our story and we think it's really important and we really you know her siblings her her siblings also and she wants to find the answers about Cleo and find out but this is also her life and this is something you know I think that where maybe a bit of a conflict between being a journalist and being a human being and recognizing that I want to be as sensitive as I can be, that this is that this is something that's impacted our story. So we did end up going to meet April and spending, spending uh, time with her. And she was really keen and she was really eager. And we really we had... So and we many- did it after... Um, she's the only sibling who's actually still close to her adoptive parents. Most of the other adoptions failed. Um, but we did it after speaking with both both of her parents um, about it to see uh, what what their advice was on on how to best handle an interview with April. And it was after speaking with them and doing some more, you know, uh, discussing it amongst ourselves that we decided to go. They disclosed to us that she had been sexually abused by a foster parent after she was apprehended uh, from her family and that she and her sister Annette experienced this when they were very young. Uh, So when we went out to speak with her, we went without any expectations of uh, asking her about her childhood or about what she went through. I think our goal was to have her, because it was part of um, her desire to, to be a part of the story and to help with this quest for Cleo, but we didn't want to make anything more difficult for her, so we deliberately did not ask her about any of that. And we spent like a full day with her just trying to make sure that our presence in her life was having, you know, was, was, she was going to be hopefully okay after we left. We didn't want to, to get into something and then say, okay, see you, we're, we're going now, because the next day we went to visit him. Yeah. And the reason you're seeing a picture of her as a child is because her, one of the things her adoptive parents asked us not to do was to show a picture of her as an adult or to reveal exactly where she lived because they were afraid that that she would have unwanted attention that she couldn't handle so we agreed to that and we we never showed um her picture or revealed exactly where she lived uh so this is johnny johnny is cleo's older brother 
He lives in Pennsylvania, and he's the only sibling to actually remember Cleo. When they were all adopted, he was 10 and she was 7. Again, uh, Connie and our colleague Marnie went to interview um, Johnny and spent the day with him. Spent um, hours and hours with him in his friend's barn. Um, and, the, and of course, the, the purpose was to gather information. What does he remember about Cleo? Uh, what was our last conversation like? Um, what has he heard over the years about what happened to her? And to get at that main thread, that main through line that we're, that we're always driving at. But what happened is that he, like the other siblings, started to provide natural jumping off points into the bigger context because it's so interwoven. It's such a big part of the story. You can't, you can't avoid it. Um, and this is um, uh, one of those times when it just gave us the perfect opportunity to go into that bigger context when Johnny tells Connie that he uh, saw a picture online of, uh, that re reminds him of when he and his siblings were taken from his mother, Lillian. Johnny wants to show me a different picture, something he saw online that triggered memories of his childhood. Oh, it's a picture of Mounties and uh, priests and uh, nuns taking kids away <laughs> from my house. It just reminded me of what happened, but it was... It was, it was taking kids away, but the parents were there and everything, kids running away. Except I didn't run, I was there trying to save us. I tried, I think it, I, in my mind, I remember thinking Lillian's going to come save us, but she never did. Was it a painting? Yeah. Was it that Kent Monkman painting? Yeah, I think so. We go on in the podcast again, like, because uh, this is about the context, to explain that this this is this memory that he has or what was triggered by seeing this photo online, that this is a scene that would have uh, played out in hundreds, if not thousands, of, of Indigenous communities across the country. Uh, and this is, I think, a depiction of a residential school because when they took kids to residential schools, the, it was the police, it was the Mounties who came to your door and took your children away. Um, and it was often the schools were run by churches, and, and so there were nuns and, and priests as well. Um, and so that this would have this would have happened during residential schools, but this would also have happened during the 60s scoop. And so, uh, again, just trying to find ways to kind of weave these two kind of goals together. And I just want to mention one other thing about Johnny is I think that when we went to talk to him, I feel like, you know, that was the first time in 40 years he had ever talked to anybody about what had happened to him. And he... I think was ready for it, and I, I think part of that is is also because there hasn't been this interest in these stories in the 60 Scoop and MMIW in residential schools about residential schools. So people haven't often necessarily been asked, um, and so they are eager, I think, to have and to share. They feel they're important. They want to find answers, um, but just as journalists, to be mindful that 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 can be a very difficult experience. And again, it, it was like like I'm I don't even a full day with Johnny. And then it turned into um, the beginning, that was the beginning of like a months long kind of conversation that happened on the phone, over text message, over Facebook Messenger, and that it's not something that begins and ends in one day like maybe some of the other interviews that we've done that are, are on shorter stories. Mm, it's ongoing was, to this yeah, day. <laughs> it's still ongoing, yeah. He really wishes he could have been here, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, th so this was an example of, of 
kind of providing a natural way to provide the context. So this is, we're going to get into a spoiler alert. Uh, if you haven't heard the podcast, we just want to give you some warning that we're going to reveal, um, reveal some things in this, uh, including that we found Cleo. Um, that this is me, uh, we found, found out that she wasn't adopted into Arkansas, she was adopted into New Jersey, um, and that her new name was, was Cleo Madonia. Um, and we found out that everything that her family had believed about her death was wrong. Um, that she wasn't uh, uh, murdered while trying to get back to Saskatchewan, that at 13 years old, she took her own life. And I found out that um, when we traveled to New Jersey, we... She also was never in Arkansas. She actually was adopted to a family in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, we, when we went to New Jersey, we, uh, we found this grave site, and we, and we found uh, out... Um, we found some photos of her uh, at the local school, and then eventually we went to knock on her her mother's her adoptive mother's door. Um, and I only chatted with her for a few minutes. She was not feeling well. Um, she was about to have uh, some kind of major surgery in the next few days, and she she was totally lovely and open to invited me in right away. And when I mentioned that I was working with this family. Um, she, in Saskatchewan, who was looking for their sister, she said, yes, that was Cleo, um, but she took her own life. Uh, and we chatted for just a few minutes. And, but one of the things she told me about Cleo before she died, she said that Cleo was a good kid who got a raw deal. And that really stuck with me because I know that... Um, you know, that kind of made it sound like Cleo was unlucky or that, you know, she just kind of just had a, a rough go at things. But I know that, you know, how common uh, suicide is for, for children who were adopted in the 60s scoop, uh, who were disconnected from their culture, their family, their language, their community, and the isolation that they felt. Uh, and so... Um, so again, this became another kind of natural point to kind of weave in um, some of the, the bigger history or some of the, uh, the context that we felt was so important in telling, telling this family story. So I'm just going to play you a little bit of, uh, so this is after my conversation with Mrs. Madonia, where she said that Cleo uh, was a good kid who, who got a raw deal. I don't fault Mrs. Madonia if she doesn't know the truth about Canadian history. She may not know how tragically predictable her daughter's life and death were. What happened to Cleo? What happened to Johnny? What happened to April, Annette, Mark, and Christine wasn't a matter of luck. Instead, their devastating experiences as children, as adoptees, are echoed in Indigenous communities across the country. Some say these tragic experiences are a direct result of a system designed to, quote, deal with the Indian problem in Canada. And we kind of go on to talk about some of the kind of present day statistics of how that, that what happened then is still rippling through communities. Um, and so, um, you know, just an opportunity to kind of weave in that, that context that, that's really, I think, was really kind of important to our story. And when we got feedback from people who listened, I think that was also something that people really appreciated as well. 
Um, so the next thing we're going to talk about is this idea of being a storyteller versus being a story taker. And I think that that's particularly important, again, when you're dealing with communities that have been marginalized or misrepresented in the media. Um, this idea that you are telling their stories for them versus helping to give them agency in their own stories or helping to amplify their voices to tell their own stories. And, uh, you know, I, I think that well, obviously, because of my background, I would you you might imagine that I I get this right all the time, but <laughs> no, I don't. Um, and this is an example of of in the podcast when I didn't feel that we did uh, get it right uh, right after Christine or after we found out about Cleo's death. Um, we went back to Little Pine, back to the reserve where uh, they were taken from their mother, and uh, we wanted to learn about. What happened? Why were all the kids taken? Well, you know, like what was? Why were? Why didn't they stay with other family members? Like what was happening? And and within a few minutes of of or a few hours of arriving on the reserve, Marty and I uh, were in this teepee. The the chief, uh, who is also happens to be their cousin, had arranged for this elder Alex Kennedy to to put on a pipe ceremony because he wanted to begin uh, the interviews uh, and our visit in their community in a in a good way. So within um, um, you know an hour, we were hearing Cree. All of these all of these people spoke Cree. They were speaking Cree to one another. We were participating in this cultural ceremony. Uh, we were meeting relatives of Cleo and Christine's, um, you know, that hadn't seen them in, in years or decades. Uh, and we were basically Marnie and I experiencing everything that Christine had been longing for her entire life. And and we were sitting there, and I remember feeling that we had kind of taken over what began as her quest to find her sister. And that, that that felt wrong, that this, you know, that this could, this story could be better told if it was Christine having this experience, if this was Christine uh, being, uh, being, you know, actually connecting with her community, her language, her culture, her family. Um, and it reminded me of Duncan McHugh's uh, storyteller versus story taker lesson. And uh, that's also, he, he did a whole guide called Reporting in Indigenous Communities, riic.ca. Uh, and it's a guide for non-Indigenous journalists who are interested in telling stories from Indigenous communities, where he goes over ideas and concepts like, like this one. Um, and so this really kind of informed how we continued with this story and in this investigation. And so later on, we'll show you, um, when we go back to New Jersey, because we want to talk to, we want to find out what happened in Cleo's life right before her death. Uh, and we know there's a police report that, um, that police investigated something in her death. Um, we saw a newspaper clipping that, about a girl who had been picked up by a hitchhiker and assaulted, and we wondered if there was some connection. So we're planning to go back to New Jersey and find out these answers. Um, and, but we decide to bring Christine with us. And so we'll talk a bit more about that when we, mm -hmm. when we get to that, to that point. So that's the continuation of the main, the main narrative, the main mystery. But, and we, it was a big, very big decision for us to reveal how Cleo died um, when we did, because we, re we reveal it basically in the middle of the podcast. And five, yeah. Yeah, the beginning yeah. of yeah, beginning of episode six of a ten episode podcast. And we grappled with that a lot because we wondered for those people who are here just for the mystery, are they going to keep listening? 
now we know what happened. We don't know everything that happened, and we were very clear, you know, we kept dropping little breadcrumbs. We still plan to go back and, and hopefully get that police file, and we tried to maintain the suspense around you know, exactly what happened when she died and what was going on in her life, but you find out that that's how she died. And so for some, it might have felt like the end of the story, but we knew there was so much more story that we wanted to tell, and we wanted to take a very big departure out of the main narrative into this crucial history lesson that we thought people needed to understand what happened to this family. Um, and so we did it for two episodes, and we thought the stuff is... You know, we continued to connect it back to the main narrative, but it was like being in school for two episodes. Here's the history that you don't know, and are people going to stick around for this? But we, what we hoped was that by that point in the story, people were so invested in this family and cared as much about Cleo and her family as we did that they would stick around for this history lesson. So it started with us going to the library and looking for the advertisements that um, appeared in the newspapers for the kids who were in this adoption program. We went to the archives of Saskatchewan and we looked through box, uh, you know, piles and piles of um, bankers' boxes at old government documents, mostly um, heavily redacted. We interviewed uh, the man who started the Adopt Indian Métis program and asked him why it was started and whether he had any regrets about it. Um, we um, uh, dug up thousands of government documents and we were able to piece together that at the time, they claimed, the government claimed, and, and, and continue to this day, that the intention was never to adopt children into white families. They just wanted to get kids permanent homes. But the people who were stepping up to adopt them were middle-class white families. So we were able to, to, to fill in this history. Um, we met a, a woman who actually knew their birth mother back when her children were taken. Um, who uh, was a Métis activist who organized women in the community to protest the adoptions and protest the ads. And this was a, this, these were two pretty weighty episodes, again, really departing from the main narrative, but all of this important um, historical context that we wanted to include, and people stuck around for it, so that was good. I feel like it was kind of like inverted, where like if you imagine the main thread was like, Cleo's mystery, and then we're trying to like weave in this other kind of thing, where for these two episodes, the main thread was like this context, and we tried to keep weaving in Cleo's story throughout. Um, and and like finding memos like this uh, in the archives, I think really helped, and this was, um, it's amazing, actually, archives are, they were incredible, but this is, a, this is a memo from the director of this AIM program, this Adopt Indian and Métis program, to one of the social workers that worked in North Battleford, where Cleo and her siblings were adopted from, um, congratulating her and, and awarding her a salesperson of the year award because of the number of kids she was able to bring in uh, to apprehend and, and so who were, would be eligible for adoption. Um, and I think that that was just uh, like... It was a useful, it was three long days in the archives, but it was incredibly useful, yeah. So this is kind of going back to giving Christine uh, agency or letting subjects lead part of the investigation, right? Like this was our story, but this was her life. And I think that another thing that kind of contributed to us wanting to give her as much agency as possible was the fact that throughout this whole process, we were finding things out about this family's life before they, before them. So we, I talked to Cleo's adopted mom and I found out uh, how she died. And then, and then we called, we had to call Christine and Johnny and Mark, uh, another sibling in April, and tell them 
that, that this is what happened to their sister. Um, you know, and to Wayne, the chief in Saskatchewan as well, Connie yeah. has an interview with him where she says, we found out how Cleo died, do you want to know? Like, I was like, I don't think I should be the person telling you this. Like, have, you know, like, is this something? And he said, I want you to tell me, and so I did. But it was, I feel like it was this very uncomfortable position to be in, um, because it wasn't like we were retelling a story about somebody from long ago. It was like, this is actually happening to them right now. Uh, and this is their life right now. And it felt uh, like it felt kind of wrong to be put in that position where, where you have uh, more knowledge than they do about their own lives. And that was true when we found out things about their, their mother and about why they were taken. And yeah, so, so when we went back to New Jersey, uh, and, and you guys might have questions about you know, some of the ethical questions around bringing her back uh, with us and, and, and being transparent about that we paid for her to, to be there because that's not something she was able to do on her own. Um, and so this is a scene from, from basically she's reunited with Johnny. Been waiting a long time. Hey, you. Hi. Last I saw you, you were like six months old, I think. Hair's gray like mine and everything. It's good to see you. I'm glad you came down. It's good to see you. You all right? Yeah. Must have been 40 something years. Yeah. It's good to see you though. You look like Brad. Do I? <laughs> That's good, right? Yeah. Yeah. Glad you came down. I was like surprised that they were said you would come down. Christine just keeps nodding her head as Johnny talks. She's staring up at him with this big smile on her face and tears in her eyes. That's awesome. It's like someone trying to get water. Oh, cool. I hope you guys aren't late and long. That's a no. I got some drinks and everything. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that was really a time when, um, for me, it felt like we were sort of running at parallel purposes bringing Christine first to Pennsylvania to see her brother who she hadn't seen in more than 40 years was obviously very good for our story. It created an incredibly moving scene. In the podcast, it's actually much, much bigger scene than this. We cut it down to this little video for Facebook. Um, And it was, you know, a, a very moving thing for the podcast, but it was also good for her. She wanted this. She wanted to do this. She never would have been able to do this on her own. She's a person of limited means. We arranged her flights. We helped her get a passport. Um, We did all of that with permission from our director of journalistic standards and practices at CBC because that's not something that we can just do willy-nilly. We have to talk through our reasons for doing that and people might have questions about that. I I know in the last session people did. Uh, But we brought her with us, and we were transparent in the podcast that we had arranged for all of this. And so it was, you know, we were constructing a, we were constructing something by bringing her with us, but it was something that she would have done had she been able to. We weren't creating something in her life that, you know, was very, like an unusual or strange thing for her to do. It's something I think she would have done if she could have, and we made it possible, and and, um, it became part of the story. 
And this is also part of the story, right? So then she becomes the person who goes to the registrar's office, and because she's Cleo's sister, she can access uh, the death certificate in Cleo's death certificate, uh, which we wouldn't have been able to get uh, necessarily as journalists. And she's also, uh, you know, the person who knocks on the door of the police officer who was one of the first people on the scene uh, when Cleo died. Um, and she's asking him questions about that day. And then when we get ac the access to the police report into Cleo's death 40 years later, um, Christine is the one who's reading it first. And she, a part of that report included handwritten notes from Cleo. So she's reading her sister's, hearing her sister's voice for the first time, uh, you know, through this police report. And that was obviously a huge part of our story. And um, I, I felt like, I think that we were all so grateful that we were able to do that. Uh, um, and that, you know, she was also front and center for that. And that we were, again, giving her agency and amplifying her experience as opposed to us being, being the ones doing that. Mm -hmm. Because um, it was such an intimate thing to be sitting there and reading these handwritten notes from her sister who had died 40 years ago. The police file wasn't even supposed to exist anymore. It was by some miracle of, you know, bad bookkeeping or bad record keeping that it even existed, so. But Christine believes, and this is also part of it, like from the very beginning, she was like, Cleo wants us to find her. Cleo visits me in my dreams. She's asking to come home. She is designing all of this. And, and I'm not, um, there were so many coincidences and things that happened that just seemed uh, really bizarre that Christine was like, I knew, I know that she was like, we're going to get a call after three o'clock and we're going to be able to go and access the police file. Yeah. And then we got a call after three o'clock <laughs> that we could go and access like, and there were things yeah. like that that were, were, but she really believed she was like, I know that this is happening. I know this is meant to happen for a reason. And this is all part of something else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So just, um, wrapping up, um, we had this goal of, of weaving the, the, the two threads. And I think it was actually quite humbling for us because in the end, what happened was that the person who did it best was Cleo herself. Because we had access to this police file, we found out that the person who could incorporate the bigger context into her life story better than anyone was a 13-year-old girl. And in that file, there were um, transcripts of interviews the police had done with her teachers because they knew that she had had taken her own life but they still investigated it and she, there were two teachers who she was particularly close to and they both did very long interviews with the police at the time and um, in those interviews the teachers um, recounted some conversations that they had had with Cleo and uh, one of them said in describing Cleo's experience in New Jersey. She was very, very unhappy living in the United States. She was very worried about her family, her original family, her brothers and sisters, what had happened to them, where they were, who adopted them. She wanted to get back to them in the worst way. Those were Cleo's own words. And, and a part of the same transcript, um, the same teacher recounted, she said, this one time she was hugging her because Cleo was upset about something and I said to her, keep calm, and she said no. The government had no right. The government had absolutely no right to let me go. They took me away from my family and from my brothers and my sisters. 
And again, this 13-year-old uh, understood at that point that this was part of something bigger, that this was, a, this was uh, you know, I don't know if she knew about the government program or if she knew about, but that this was, that this was something bigger. And we really, like, it couldn't have been more, um, like, I remember reading that in the, in the police uh, interview room, just feeling devastated. Yeah, that everything just that. crystallized. Yeah. yeah, in that moment, yeah, crystallized. And so you're probably wondering um, if that resonated with our audience, like having these kind of two things. And I think that it really did. Like for Canadians, uh, this is not a history that is taught in schools. Uh, it's starting to be, but it, it hasn't, not when I was in school. Um, and so a lot of people wrote to us and said they didn't even know this history in Canada. And I'm sure it's the same in the United States. Um, and that, you know, we even had feedback from uh, people who work in child welfare, where there's still an overrepresentation of Indigenous kids in the child welfare system because of all of these reasons, uh, the same reason that Cleo was taken, um, who said that they learned things from our podcast or it helped deepen their understanding in a different way. And, and so I feel like it, it's going to be very difficult for me to go back to just doing regular news stories <laughs> after having the opportunity to, to, like, this is the dream like, this is the reason I want to become a journalist, you know, this is th to be able to do this. Uh, so I think that it was successful and I think that it was worth it. And, and I think that there are hopefully ways that all of you can take these kinds of lessons and, and figure out if there's way to, to weave in that bigger, bigger context, which I think is more important than ever in terms of helping people understand where these stories actually begin. Right? Like there's a new development all the time in so many new stories, but, but how does that tie back to something that will, will really help bring it home for people? Um, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, um, uh, there, there's a school board near Toronto who is looking at ways, there's working with Connie to find ways to bring the podcast into their curriculum. Um, educators have used it in their classroom. And the, the, the amount of feedback we got from people who said that it should be essential listening for all Canadians, I think, was probably one of the most gratifying things. So thank you all for thank joining you. us, and we're happy to answer any questions if, if anyone has. But thank you. Hello. Um, great presentation. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the trauma-informed approach to reporting. I feel like as journalists, we're often on the front lines, not necessarily talking to people about trauma as traumatic as this, but, you know, I've had people breaking down talking about school budgets and, you know, they're, they finally found someone to talk to this. I'm like half therapist, half journalist. Part of me is like, this is great tape. Part of me is like, oh my God, this is a horrible situation. I just would love some practical tips if you have any. Oh gosh, I think it's hard. It's so hard. I think that it's so important to uh, be sensitive to it and be aware of it. Uh, I think that is half the battle. Like, um, and I don't, I feel like uh, because I am an Indigenous person, I grew up on a reserve, I have personal connections to all of these things, including like lived experience with trauma. And so I think that informs my approach just because of that. I, I, I think that that's something that I'm always kind of thinking about and aware of. I, you know, I, don't, I don't feel like I have great tips, but just being sensitive to and taking the time with people and having realistic expectations. Like you can't expect to just 
have a, you know, get a short clip from somebody and be like, okay, Sia, I'm out of here. Like, it, I think that it really kind of informs your, your approach. And I'm, I'm really, I, when, when I approach people for interviews, uh, especially people like families of MMIW, I am like the worst. I'm like, like, totally no pressure, like, only if you're okay with it, like, no worries <laughs> if you're not, I get it, I understand, and like, I think maybe we nudge her a little bit. Yeah, more. the producers are like, mm. and when, like when, when we went to Mrs. Madonia's door, I was like, I'm not sure this is a good idea. Like, I don't think so. Like, at 40 years, this reporter's gonna knock on your door because we'd been calling her and we'd been trying to reach her in other ways, and we couldn't, and we were leaving that day to get on a plane back to Toronto. And I was like, I just don't think this is gonna be like this woman is very elderly. I'm gonna knock on her door and bring up this really painful traumatic memory. I don't think we should do this. And Marnie's like, get out of the car. Like, she's like, Ugh. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. Um, so I, I, I feel like I have a very cautious approach and I try to be very careful um, because I really feel that, that this But which is, is so, I mean, I've done so many stories over the years about families or people who've been through terrible things. And I think, you know, we're not trained to take time. We're not trained to let people have their space and to let stories unfold slowly. We're trained to get, get it. Right? Like, get the tears. Get the tears. Like, I used to work in television. Get the tears. Get the teary shot. I mean, it's not quite as crass as that, but, um, you know, it kind of goes against our instincts as journalists. But I think, at least in Canada, what we're finding, even in a very small way, it's something that people are becoming a little more aware of. There's, in fact, um, a journalist in Canada yes. called Matthew Pearson, and yes. I'm happy to give you his contact information or, or set, hook you up with him, who just did a whole fellowship about trauma-informed reporting, and he's actually left his job as a city hall reporter in Ottawa to focus 100% on training people on, on trauma-informed um, reporting. And he spent months um, sort of researching it and um, is, is now training on it. So it's something that I think maybe is at least where we are, coming to people's minds a bit more because we have to remember that the people we interview are complete human beings. They're not just characters in our stories. Um, can you talk a bit about, uh, do you think this podcast could have been done with a non-Indigenous reporter? No, I don't think so. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so, though. Not as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, and nice I completely. I think that the truth, the reality is there aren't very many, there aren't enough Indigenous journalists out there. Um, and we shouldn't all uh, be expected to be focused on telling stories from Indigenous communities. And that we need non-Indigenous journalists to take on these stories. We absolutely need, need people to do that. Because uh, they are important. There's finally a recognition now, at least in Canada, that they are important, that Canadians are interested, that they're relevant, that they get traction, they get numbers, there's an audience for it. Um, but, but I think that uh, I think that podcasting feels to me really, uh, or at least the way that I do podcasting, feels like very personal. And I feel like I bring a lot of my own experiences into the storytelling. Um, in the first season more than, than this one, you know, I talked directly about my experience and my family's experience with residential schools and how that's impacted my uh, desire to want to do these stories. So I think that this podcast in particular, um, maybe not like, you know, I think that it was really unique to my experience in some ways. Um, but I hope that, that that doesn't discourage people from, from doing these stories because they need to be told and they're important. And there are so, I think that like, if this is a big issue in Canada, um, in terms of the amount of women who are affected and the amount of women and girls who are experiencing violence or who are missing or murdered, 
uh, it's way bigger in the United States. Uh, the population is huge and, and people need to be talking about these issues. Thank you so much, that was amazing. Um, do you have any regrets about the way you told the story? Um, I definitely have regrets about other stories that I've done. This <laughs> one, yeah, um, I can't, that's a, that's a difficult question. Um, yeah, you know, I think that, that there were, you know, we tried to, yeah, I think that we tried to be as sensitive as we possibly could be, but there were definitely, um, we, we don't talk about Mark very much in this uh, presentation or in the podcast very much because he was another sibling um, who we didn't, uh, who didn't have a very good experience, I think, through, through this um, for lots of different reasons and maybe not only because of us and us doing it, but uh, I don't think that we were quite aware of, we didn't know what we were gonna find out when we began. We were like, let's see what, what, what we find. And we had no idea we would get this level of detail about Cleo, but about their mother, um, about we got access to her residential school records. Um, we, we learned from family members that she also experienced a terrible sexual assault um, around the time her kids were taken. Uh, I think that the uncovering of that information was very difficult for all of the, the family, and it kind of brought up all of these old wounds, I think, for mm -hmm. Mark in particular, that was challenging. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it's so strange to be in these situations because these siblings um, did not grow up together. They were adopted, and so in some ways, they don't really know each other either, and they live very, very far from each other, and so each of their experience of our story is different. Like something that Christine might have been very comfortable with, you know, Johnny might have struggled with more, or, and then in the case of Mark, the sibling that Connie just mentioned, he really struggled with us delivering this information to him. Um, and we ended up really not interacting with him much after that. So understandably, God, yeah. you like who wants a reporter? It's like you, it's like you become like the fifth wheel in a in a family, you know, when you start to actually know that family, know as much about that family's history as um, they know themselves, and it's a really delicate relationship to to navigate, and you don't always get it right. Hi, um, I am wondering if you can talk a little bit about inside your newsroom, what it took to make this. Um, so I am I work for a newspaper that's starting new shows, and as I develop them, I'm concerned about asking for so much time from one of our investigative reporters, let alone a few. So I'm wondering if this was a huge initiative and you were given all the time to work on this full time, or if this was a struggle and it took the first season to justify this second season, or if you could just talk about all of those internal aspects of making this show. Sure, so the first season was supposed to be a TV story, a two minute TV story, that then when we came back with like, oh my gosh, this happened, this happened, and we've uncovered this whole other theory about Alberta's death, um, we convinced them to let us do a podcast. But we didn't have very much experience doing a podcast, so we had no idea how much work it took. And so uh, we, we had wildly unrealistic expectations, and we it was probably the most stressful experience of my life. We started, uh, writing in July, nine episodes. Uh, we started rolling them out in October. Uh, <laughs> I was not involved in season one. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they and they fit. And we were writing and rolling out at the same time, and still getting tips about things and investigating at the same time. And we finished in December, and that was honestly one of the most stressful experiences. So I was like, we're, they wanted us to do another season, and I said, there's no way we're doing that again. Like we need to 
we need to do it differently. And so with Clio, we started in March, um, and it took a full year, and we rolled out the following March. Yeah, and it started as a two-person team, so it started as Connie and Marnie, our other yeah. producer, worked on it for about three months on their own, and did a lot of the, the, the principal investigation was, um, was their work. Um, and then I came on board and focused more on the historical stuff, going, you know, all the archival stuff and going back to Saskatchewan and all that sort of heavy lifting research. Um, and because the other thing we did, in addition to a 10 episode podcast, was we produced a 12 minute television documentary, which I produced, which I really don't recommend trying to gather for a podcast and TV at the same time. It's way too much work. Um, but we work for a corporation that feeds many, many mouths. We have many, many platforms, and everybody wants a piece of the pie. And this was very expensive, and it took a long time. And, and I don't think it was that expensive. It was I'll, expensive. I'll, no, no. <laughs> I think that it's expensive if you think, oh, this is one story. Uh, it, took, it took a long time, and it cost a lot of money. But I think if you think about this is nine hours, eight hours of programming. This is a program, and these are nine episodes. It's a season. Yeah. Uh, I think that if you break it down that way, I, I, I will challenge anyone who says that this is expensive. Well, and part of the reason, I mean, the TV news folks agreed to pitch in some money for our travel, which is, anyhow, I mean, that's... So yeah, that's probably a bit more detailed. Than yeah, you but all to say, like, it's not like people were going, yeah, take as long as you want and spend as much money no, as you no. want. No, that wasn't happening. No. Um, and it was still like it was really, really a lot of work to get it done in that amount of time. I felt like you know we were um, we're still learning how to do it. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's this whole rollout and promotion machine that happens, which we're very, very lucky to have that support. But it's also the last part of the process as well. But we were a team of four plus one uh, senior producer who was not on the project full time. She had another job as well. Um, but yeah. yeah, that's how big our team was. Okay. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. That was the Q&A from the second session of Beyond True Crime. Now here's the Q&A from day one. Can you kind of explain like the decision process you go through when you decide that you're going to like take, take her with you to New Jersey and have her go through the process? Does, does she then become a part of like the investigation or are you actually losing your objectivity at that point? And again, I'm not indicting you. I just, I'm no. just curious. No, no, that's that's good. I mean, and I think that like that you had a lot of conversations around bringing Christine to New Jersey and how we would do that, and was that kosher with CBC's policy, and you know how we could figure that out. Um, I, I, I don't. I think that like there are so many interesting conversations to be had around this idea of objectivity in journalism and what that actually means, because so much of it is actually subjective. Like everything that we do in journalism is actually very subjective, from the kinds of stories we choose to the people we talk to to the way we do it. So I, I think that I and and I think that if you're I mean, what I've experienced as an indigenous journalist is always this question of like, are you an advocate or are you a journalist? And I, I'm, I, I think first and foremost, I'm a journalist. If I'm an advocate for the truth, if anything, the truth about this history that people don't know about, the truth about how it continues to affect the lives of uh, indigenous people in North America today, and revealing that and connecting those dots. That's not to say I'm not advocating for any kind of political you know, I'm not advocating for any kind of, you know, thing to happen except for awareness and knowledge, and that people then continue to connect the dots and have are better informed. Um, for the issue of bringing Christine, um, I, I think that when I say that she kind of became part of it, it in it's that we were definitely 
the way that it happened before is that we were finding out things and then we were informing Christine and Johnny about things about themselves and their own lives. You we know, we were learning incredible details about their family that they didn't know about, and having been put in the somewhat uncomfortable position of telling them about their own family. So, like when we found out that Cleo died by suicide, for example, we were the ones that had to tell them that about their sister or that we found her, um, and that also felt wrong, you know, in a lot of ways, or it felt very uncomfortable. It's not, you know, because it's not something that you're retelling that happened 40 years ago. This is happening to them right now. And so we wanted to figure out a way that we could be, they could be involved in the process and they could be leading that part of it. And so when Christine knocks on the door of the policemen who used to work in, in the Evesham Police Department, you know, she was the one who was saying, I, like, you investigated my sister's uh, death. Do you, like, what do you remember? Um, and we were there in our jobs as journalists, recording it and following up if we had questions. Um, I think that... But, it, I mean, it was slightly uncharted territory. Like, I had never done a story where I spent such intense periods of time with the person I was doing the story on. You know, we were... We were we were gone for four or five days on that trip, and we were traveling together. We were staying in the same hotels. We were eating meals together. Doing laundry. Doing laundry, uh, you know, looking for souvenirs. Um, and, and, I mean, on top of that, she it was this incredibly emotional trip where she was reuniting with her brother. She was learning about her sister. She was meeting friends of her sister. Um, and it is a tricky relationship to navigate, but I think... There's nothing stopping you from relating to somebody as the subject of your story and a fellow human being. You can do both of those things at the same time, and I think the latter makes you better at the former. You know, and at the end of the day, we were still telling the story. I mean, we were writing it. You know, we were deciding how to structure it, and so we were still playing that role as journalists. But um, we were doing it with her trust. And it still feels awkward. I mean, I almost feel like Christine should be here today. I feel like yeah. Johnny should be here today. You know, yeah. they're characters in our story, but they're real people. To us, they're characters, but to them, this is their life that they will live with for the rest of their lives. Um, so it's just, you know, it's just important to remember that. Hi. Um, yesterday, I was in a, in a group where we were talking about um, the difficulty of bringing your own identity into your work. Um, in that context, it was about queer identity, but we were talking about how you have to a, work up the courage to actually be vulnerable like that, and also there's the worry of getting pigeonholed as someone who like does queer stories or does stories about indigenous uh, communities. And I'm wondering what it was like for you getting to the point where you, where you felt um, you know, like you wanted to start bringing your identity into your work. Like maybe you did that from the get-go. I don't know if it was a, tar uh, a journey for you. I'd be curious I, to know. I might have done it from the beginning if, if there was any interest in those stories when I started. There wasn't. You know, I pitched my first MMIW story 11 years ago when a girl um, who I knew from back home had gone missing. And it was the same summer that a white woman went missing in Toronto and she was on the cover of the national newspapers and she was on the national newscast every night. And Amber um, didn't even get local coverage back in Saskatchewan. And I found out about her disappearance from an email chain that her, her family had sent around saying, Amber's been missing, can anybody help? Can, can you please spread the word? And I remember going into, I worked on a network show at that time, and I went into pitch to my executive producer, uh, a network show that explored media. I went into pitch to her that we should do a story about the, the disparity. Like, why is one story getting more attention than the other? Like, let's, do, let's talk about this. And she stopped me in the middle of the pitch, and she said, 
this isn't another poor Indian story, is it? And I remember just feeling obviously deflated and dejected and I left and I didn't get to do that story. Um, and, and I think that that's something, that's the bigger issue for me, is that for so long these were seen as stories that are not important, that are not interesting to Canadians, that aren't relevant. And now I feel like because there's finally recognition that they are important, there's finally attention being paid to them, that I feel like this is an opportunity. Like I have to take advantage of it. I, have, I, am, I am somebody, because of my lived experience, that offers a really unique, valuable perspective that actually makes my storytelling better, uh, I, I think, than, than people who don't have that lived experience or who don't have that, uh, that kind of knowledge. And because people are just learning about indigenous communities, it's going to, it's going to take a while for people to, to kind of, you know, be able to, to, to do that in a meaningful way. So I feel like I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm actually more than happy to only be focused on indigenous issues uh, right now. And it's interesting, because one of the things that we, we thought about including in this session, but we didn't, was the idea of radical transparency. Because Connie, I think more than any other host or reporter I've ever worked with is really willing to open herself up in her storytelling and be very frank and, and honest about her own ethical dilemmas, how things um, relate to her own experience. You know, in the first season of the podcast, um, Connie talked about her own family's experience with residential schools. And I think, I think that people, the audience appreciates that radical transparency. I think, um, you know, it's not called for in every story, but I think for forever, journalists have supposed to have, the, have their objective hats on. And um, yes, we do have to be objective, but breaking down those barriers and understanding that that person is bringing their own experience into that story and can actually help enlighten the story and, and, and help you understand the story um, and is, is not a bad thing. And, if, and not every host or reporter is willing to um, open themselves up like that, but I think when they do, the, the audience appreciates it. Um, in the workshop right before this on radical narrative storytelling, um, they brought up this issue with um, uh, personal stories like this one called the empathy trap, which refers to like uh, the idea that like people who exist on um, different intersections of privilege actually like can't truly understand each other um, because of those like institutionalized like structure uh, imbalances of power. And so um, I'm just wondering if you could expand a bit more on the like unothering the other thing, given like that like in and your goal to like bridge that gap when there are those structural power power things that prevent people from really understanding each other yeah god i hope that's not true that's so depressing if it's true <laughs> i mean i think yeah i think that's our job as storytellers that's our job is to reveal the humanity in in people and find a way for you to connect your humanity to that person humanity, whether you might not ever be able to put yourself in that shoes, in that person's shoes, but God, we have to try, you know, we have to try, I think. And I just think the more stories that are told and the more examples you have that are not, uh, you know, continuing on in the misconceptions and stereotypes or harmful tropes, that, that you're actually changing the narrative that people are starting with as well, I hope. Thank you. Um, I have three questions, so I'll ask them at the same time. Uh, 
One, uh, archival access. I'm curious, have you had trouble in, in getting the rights to use that material? Because that was incredible stuff that you, I can't believe it was there. Um, two, I'm curious about your use of music when there was so much emotion in the voices. Oh, Mika and there can was answer that. Still music. <laughs> and the third one has to do with the ethical quandary that was raised about your taking the, the trip to New Jersey. Did, what was your choice about not revealing that it was possibly a quandary to be part of the narrative and change the narrative by your action? Sorry, what was that third one? Well, did we, because I guess in the telling of the podcast, we didn't actually open up about the, the ethical quandary of bringing her with us. I mean, we were transparent But I'm curious about, why you didn't. Yeah. Um, we did. We feel like it was carefully worded. We said something Well, we about... definitely were transparent about the fact that we paid for the trip. Yeah. We wanted to say that we paid for the trip without saying we paid for the trip. So I think we said something like, we arranged for her to come. We wanted to say it in a slightly more elegant way, but we knew that we needed to be transparent about the fact that we had made yeah. it happen. Um, but I, I guess, I don't know why we didn't get into the ethical quandary of bringing her, because... Um, there were so many other ethical yeah, quandaries to get into. Also, I mean, at that point, we were actually, I think, writing the episodes as they were uh, rolling <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, that's the reason. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I remember like nine and ten are really a blur in a lot because <laughs> it was happening like at a very short amount of time. I don't think that it was anything deliberate necessarily. Yeah, um, and I don't think it wasn't like the choice to bring Christine with us became such an obstacle that it. You know, once we'd made the decision to do it, it it just it didn't it it wasn't a big a stumbling block or anything like it wasn't something that we struggled with the whole time we were there. Please understand, I'm, I'm not questioning your decision. Yeah, no, that's you know, okay. That's your decision. <laughs> that's yeah, and I'm just questioning the ethics of not couching it, of not revealing it. I mean, maybe it's different for CBC than for say NPR or something. But as someone who frequently works with NPR, I I would have never been allowed to do that. Oh, that's to, interesting. To pay for her to come? No. Oh. Because it changes the narrative. Yeah. It affects the narrative. Yeah. It impacts the story. Yeah. It changes the story. Well, for what it's worth, involvement. Yeah, yeah, and for what it's worth, we do have a journalistic standards and practices. And so for that particular thing, we had to go to the director of the JSP and ask him for his, um, in fact, Heather did it, I think. Yeah. And I remember he said something like, there are times in our storytelling where people aren't where we need them to be. <laughs> and so we can make that happen. Yeah. So it's not... It's interesting that it would not be allowed at NPR. And the question about the archives, um, oh my gosh. So what ended up happening there is, it was a huge undertaking, first of all, like just to request the information and then to took forever to get it and then to go through it all. Um, we ended up signing a non-disclosure agreement, um, which prohibited us, so we had to familiarize ourselves with the privacy legislation in Saskatchewan and make sure that we were not violating it. And, and what that did was it saved us time because some of the documents we got from them were redacted, but some of them weren't redacted. And we, it was incumbent on us to make sure that we were living up to the legislation, and that's what the non-disclosure agreement was. Does that answer your question about the archives? Yeah. And then the music was the third. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she said music was the third. Oh, yeah, the music. That's Mika. I mean, so uh, you're saying, did we consider not using music at all, or, or could we, or would we? I mean, I think music is nice because it does just, I think, when you have a 45-minute long episode or an hour-long episode just for pacing, can sort of create extra movement. But I definitely think uh, the tape very easily stood on its own, and I, I do think the team really wanted a less is more 
approach and really a light hand on the music. I mean, in some swaths, I'm sure it was a little bit more dramatic feeling. I'll have to go back and uh, listen uh, again with fresh ears. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know when someone's crying, you don't need to cue the dramatic music to underscore that they're crying. Like you can just hear that in the the voice. And I think there's nothing more musical than the human voice. So I think the more we can play that up as as audio producers, the the better the story um, comes across. So. Uh, yeah, less is more. And what I loved what, what you did is that you used certain tracks to represent the same thing over and over again, right? Like certain tracks reoccurred and they became audio cues that you're about to get a reveal or you're about to, um, you know, there's about to be a turn here. Like you were very deliberate in the way that you used music. Yeah, I mean, I think also like the music becomes a character unto itself too, and whether that's thematically or based on the different individuals, but there should be a reason for using the music and then what the music means, because it does, it does take on its own personality as, as well, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like Cleo's family really did co collaborate with you guys and was really open about sharing their stories with you, um, but do you have any advice on when you're trying to tell us, or you're trying to help somebody tell their story, and then you don't quite have their full buy-in, or the closer you get to like more personal details or like bigger reveals, it's only natural for people to like back away from it or be like, you know what, I don't actually want the whole country to hear this or whatever. How do you how do you handle that as well, and how do you make sure that you you know you gain their trust and their buy-in for the story? And when do you back off? When when are you like, that's fine. I think time, I mean, I think um, if you have the luxury of time, then you can have your first phone call can be, you know, just the facts. Mm -hmm. The next phone call is you prod a bit more, then maybe you meet, the per meet them in person or you continue to email with them or it's time. People have to learn to trust you and it doesn't happen quickly. Um, and you have to have the time to allow them to tell you things when they're ready to tell them. Like this is all very idealistic and I recognize that it's not how the world works, but, um, and some people will open up to you right away, but as you say, not everybody does. Like I'm doing an interview next week with a group of siblings whose brother was violently murdered 40 years ago. And I've had phone calls with all of them and we kind of got into it, but we didn't really get into it. And so I know that when we go, we have to take our time. It has to, the, the interview can't be rushed. If we need to sit and drink coffee with them first, we will, um, you know, we, we have to take our time. And maybe that's not the first interview with them. Maybe there's a follow, although we have to fly to see them. So maybe the next one's on the phone. Um, and, and don't be afraid of silence, I would say. Like when people are telling you their story, it's easy to jump in with the next question, but be comfortable with the silence because silence usually means they're thinking. And if you wait long enough, they'll probably reveal something more that maybe even they didn't know they were gonna reveal when they agreed to the interview. So take your time and let them, let it trickle out. And sorry, one more thing. I mean, I, like in, this, in the podcast that I'm doing now, which is about um, these murdered men, I, I keep stressing to people when I call them, this is, I'm not doing the news. 
like I'm telling them this is what it, like you still have to explain what a podcast is to a lot of people. It, this is what it is. It's many hours long. We you know um, we're not doing a quick hit here. Uh, we're we want to make sure that people know that these men were not statistics. We want people to know that these men were human beings with families who love them, and want to know who killed them. And so, you know, making it clear what your intentions are and how you intend to tell that person's story, and doing what you can to earn their trust. And but then. At the end of the day, it's up to them. Thanks Thank you. very much, everyone. Thank you.